Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I've got a great conversation with Sari Botten about writing. This is episode 80, 80 of these of Untenured Tracks. I just finished uh, my memoir and essays uh, called And You May Find Yourself, Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. Um, it'll be published next summer by Heliotrope. Uh, and that was, you know, the biggest deadline of my life, most significant deadline of my life. Also a thrill to have an opportunity to work on. It's something I've been wanting to do my whole life. Um, so that is very exciting to me. Um, I'm also working on some personal essays that I hope to submit here and there. I'm working on one for LitHub. And I've also just, I'm about to launch a series, an interview series at, at Catapult uh, called How's the Writing Going? Where I interview writers about where they're at with their projects asking them the question that no writer wants to be asked, but we all kind of want to talk about. Yeah, I imagine that people listening to this, uh, regardless of whenever uh, this comes out or when you're finding this video, probably grimaced <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> at that. Um, that's such, a, such an interesting idea, though. Um, so you, you had mentioned that the, the deadline was the biggest of your, your life. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, writing my own memoir after years of ghostwriting other people's memoirs and coaching other people through their memoirs and publishing people's personal essays uh, in various positions that I've had, um, to get to finally work on my own uh, story in a very concentrated way was really um, something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And I finally was given the opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just love the form. I love personal essays. I love memoir. And uh, it's, this is my chance to contribute. Uh, I've, you know, I've edited books before and contributed to them, anthologies like Goodbye to All That and Never Can Say Goodbye. But to write an entire book that's all mine, all my material is really um, an honor to get the opportunity and um, and just a thrill. That's so cool. Well, congratulations on, on being able to accomplish that that lifelong dream. Um, so I, I would uh, be doing a disservice to everybody listening if I didn't ask you, Ben, um, to share a little bit of your story um, and, and what your memoir is about. So um, I have always felt like a misfit everywhere I've gone in my life. Um, I have felt out of step with my peers in terms of milestones that people would reach. Um, I did get married for the first time very young, but I didn't marry for the second time until I was 39. Um, I don't have children. 
uh, and most of my peers, I'm 55, most of my peers have grandchildren now. <laughs> um, I skipped that whole thing and it, it turns out to be what I prefer. Um, I have never felt comfortable in a regular job. I don't like the same foods, the same music, the same clothes that most of the kids uh, I went, I grew up with like, um, I've always just felt strange. And I also think Gen X is a generation where everybody felt a little bit strange. We kind of grew up at the intersection of should and whatever. You know, we our parents were pre-boomers and they had very regimented ideas about how we should be. And then they all changed and got divorced and had free love. And suddenly it was, oh, do whatever you want. Free to be you and me. Um, so it's a little bit about being Gen X, but it's all also a lot about being a weirdo, doing things at my own pace and how that's okay, sort of reframing what some people would consider failure mm -hmm. as just taking my own course. That's Not so bad. interesting. That's so interesting. <laughs> I, I, you got me to switch into professor mode um, and thinking of the ways that, or, or the courses that I might be able to assign your book in um, and, and oh. ways to, uh, kind of make that story or, or tell your story to a generation uh, of, I mean, I don't know what we call, what we call college students these days. I think Gen um, Z. Yeah. The Zoomers, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard so many different terms, um, but for, for uh, a generation that has become, I think, um, really hyper-focused on conformity, <laughs> um, I, I think hearing stories of people who took a little bit of a different path is is very, very important. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for being able to write your story and, and sharing these experiences. I'm sure people are going to be uh, really thrilled um, to hear about it. Thank you. Um, you've also written about, um, you, you've mentioned uh, putting together a couple of anthologies. And so um, one of the things I'm trying to accomplish um, with these interviews is to get students in the, in the writing program at Wilkes thinking about other possible career options um, or ways to kind of put their work out into the world. Um, and I, I think some of the things that you touched on, the anthologies, maybe ghostwriting a little bit, um, could be or should be things that students hear more about. And so I was hoping that you could speak to, to either or both of those aspects of your career. Yeah. Um... You know, I've often debated whether it was better for me to have a day job um, that was writing and literature adjacent or whether I should have just been like an MRI, MRI technician during the day and writing on the side. And I don't know if I'll ever land on a conclusive answer, um, but being a ghostwriter, editing anthologies, um, they were ultimately good for my career. They kept me engaged with writing and editing. I learned a lot from both of them. However, I have pretty much sworn off ghostwriting. It's very, very hard. Um, and often it involves uh, very wealthy, famous people who are used to having people do things for them. Mm -hmm. um, without them having to be very nice to you or pay you appropriately um, or credit you appropriately. I did sort of morph into coaching 
for less famous clients. Um, and that was more satisfying. Um, but then I moved on to other jobs. And then in, in terms of anthologies, I love anthologies. I love to read them. I love how you can, you know, just read a couple pieces here and there and then pick it up later. Uh, I love hearing different voices on the same subject coming from different angles. Um, and I really, uh, loved working on both of my New York City anthologies, Goodbye to All That, Writers on Loving and Leaving New York, which was recently reissued with seven new essays and never can say goodbye, writers on their unshakable love for New York. Um, I, you know, I'm passionate about New York City. I left New York City. I miss New York City. So I will engage with that, with the subject of uh, the push-pull that New York City exerts on its, its inhabitants uh, I'll engage on that subject in any way I can, mm -hmm. any time I can. Um, and it's especially thrilling when you get to work with really illustrious writers for the reissue of Goodbye to All That. I've got essays by Leslie Jameson and um, Ada Limon and uh, so many, you know, really talented uh famous writers. I've got Roxane Gay, Cheryl Strayed. Um, it's a great way to uh, build your reputation as an editor. It really helped me become an editor at Long Reads, where I was for five and a half years. Yeah, editing is such an important skill and um, something that I hope that students listening to this well into the future <laughs> appreciate. Um, because it is it is so important. Um, and I think those sound like fabulous projects. And I'm glad that you said that you'll take any opportunity to talk about them because my next question for you is going to be, uh, how did you land on these these two topics? Because they they seem, at least at first blush, to be a kind of disparate, right? And how much I love New York versus uh, saying goodbye to New York. Um, I was hoping you could talk about those a little bit. So um, honestly, both books are about the same thing, even though their titles are different. They, are, they both include contributors who left New York, stayed in New York, came back to New York, thought about leaving New York, but didn't. Uh, there's even one by Roxane Gay about never having moved to New York. Uh, she, uh, she had wanted to attend NYU as a, as a teenager, um, but then uh, her parents dissuaded her and she went to Yale. And um, years later, she came to the city to, you know, for meetings with her agent and her editors and realized it wasn't for her. Um, so goodbye to that dream of living in New York City. So both books have people who made all kinds of choices about New York City, but they are both about how difficult it is to stay and how difficult it is to leave and mm -hmm. how that choice is really hard. Um, and so the first book was named after the Didion essay, the Joan Didion essay that originally ran in the Saturday Evening Post in 1967 and then was included in her collection, uh, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And it includes only women. Um, but then I had all these other writers who were interested in talking about the subject. And um, the second collection was going to be called Here is New York. Mm -hmm. uh, after the E.B. White essay, but instead we landed on uh, Never Can Say Goodbye, a reference to a Jackson 5 song. Um, <laughs> and, um, but even in Never Can Say Goodbye, there are people who write about um, wanting to leave, leaving temporarily, leaving for good, even though they love the city. So the truth is they're really both about the same thing. 
the the Detroiter in me <laughs> is very <laughs> very happy uh, to hear a Jackson Five reference. Um, <laughs> so, so could you talk a little bit about your own your own path then? Because um, you you had said that you made the decision to leave, and I'm uh, I know we have a lot of students from New York and from the New York area, um, but certainly plenty who who have not had any kind of familiarity with that sort of push pull that you mentioned that the city has. And so I was I was hoping maybe for the sociologist in me that you could um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, it, I have a piece in Goodbye to All That that tells this story, but um, I, uh, my husband and I got kicked out of our apartment in 2005. We lived in a ramshackle, rundown, incredible loft on the corner of 8th Street and Avenue B that my brother's identical twin, my brother, my, my husband's identical twin brother had gotten in 1988 and he had to put up his own walls it was one of those like, you know, just total, it was ne- just like a, a notch above a squat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this incredible Gothic Victorian building that had been built as a children's aid society orphanage and then became a yeshiva that Paul Reiser and George Burns had attended. And then it became a shooting gallery, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that um, heroin addicts had taken it over and uh, they had stripped the place of all the copper Mm -hmm. and to sell for drugs. And then in the seventies, our landlord bought it for like $30,000 and he took on tenants, but it was up to the tenants to make the apartments livable. And so uh, we, uh, we thought that we were in a rent stabilized apartment. We thought we were going to live there forever. And then he got landmark status, the landlord and long story short, we wound up in housing court. We saw the writing on the wall. We couldn't afford even a studio in Queens for what we were paying. And so we moved upstate. And once I got up here, I live in Kingston, New York. Um, That was in 2005. Um, I started meeting other versions of myself. I Mm -hmm. kept meeting so many other people who had left New York City, mostly writers, um, either for the same reason I had or other reasons. Um, Many of them had become disillusioned with the city. And in the year that I was in housing court, I felt some of the things that Joan Didion had felt. I had felt, you know, I was watching the East Village and all of New York City become hypergentrified. Um, it, it stopped looking, it stopped resembling the place that I had moved to in the early 90s. And um, I, I, so on the one hand, I was sad that I was getting kicked out. But on the other hand, there was part of me that was saying good riddance because it wasn't the same place anymore. And um so I, I, I had all these feelings that reminded me of goodbye to all that, the, the Didion essay. And every time I would converse with somebody up here about our leaving the city, the Didion essay would come up. We would talk about it. And then I also started uh, writing a column for the Rumpus. And um, I was engaging with Cheryl Strayed and Roxane Gay and many other Rumpus writers. And we would talk about leaving New York and we would talk about the Didion essay. And I said, okay, I got something here. Um, Now for many years, uh, editors and agents, anybody who's everybody in the publishing world told me it was a great idea, but I couldn't do it. I didn't have enough platform. Uh, Anthologies don't sell. Um, And finally, when I was between agents, uh, I went 
and sold it to Seal Press on my own, unagented. And it became a huge seller. And that's why last uh, two years ago, they came to me and said, would you like to revise it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we revised it and we included some essays about leaving New York uh, or returning to New York in a pandemic. Emily Rabito has a piece about sheltering in place, staying in Harlem while many of her white neighbors left and asked her to pick up their packages. And Carolita Johnson writes about returning from Kingston back to Queens to take care of her mother. Um, So, you know, it was really nice to get the opportunity to revise the book. That's so interesting. So for for any students um, who might be watching this or listening to this, who who may be thinking of New York City as a, as a, I think, I guess, inevitable destination for their career. What, what would you say to them? Like, is there any, any advice that you think um, writers at, at any stage of their career, I suppose, um, because Wilkes does bring in students at, at various stages of their own career. Uh, what would you say to them about, about the possibility of New York City? Well, I mean, I think if, I think everyone who can should live in New York City for at least some portion of their lives, especially if you're a writer. Um, It's exhilarating. It really is. Um, Even now, and I recently published a piece with The Guardian um, about how I really miss the city now. 16 years later, I, you know, I fantasize about, you know, getting a winning lottery ticket and buying a -a pied-a-terre in the West Village. Um, You know, I think if you can live in New York City, uh, you know, it's It'll do so many things for you, even if you hate it. Even if you have a bad experience living in New York City, it will teach you things. It will teach you coping skills that you can't learn anywhere else. On the other hand, I don't think it's necessary. I think that um, more and more you can freelance for places remotely and many places will hire you remotely, especially after the pandemic. I know there have been some articles recently about how there are some places that promised remote work after the pandemic that are now changing their minds. And I also recently did not get a job that I wanted because they decided they wanted someone who lives in New York City. Um, however, I think more and more there are opportunities outside of the city. And there are small presses everywhere. There are small university presses in almost every state. Um, so there are other opportunities to gain experience. I don't think it's necessary, but if you can swing it, if you can afford it, even if you live in a closet in a group apartment, um, New York City will teach you things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that you spoke to the sort of the shift in the economy um, during the pandemic, because we're still very much in the pandemic, right? Recording this at the end of July in 2021, um, hoping that everything reopens as normal uh, in, in August, at least on the academic side. But fingers, all my fingers are crossed right now. And apologies if you can hear my children stampeding above me. Um, <laughs> this is the joys, the joys of working at home for over a year. Um, so I'm going to wait for this buffalo herd to move on. If they do, whatever, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Um, life. <laughs> it's life. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I want I wanted these interviews to really demonstrate and show kind of the realities of writing, and, and certainly work life balance is is one of those things. Um, so you get to see me blush and be embarrassed by my <laughs> small children. Um, so 
I was I was hoping that maybe you could talk about your process a little bit because that's something that I know a lot of students, especially early in in the writing program, um, tend to to fixate on a little bit is is how do people um, write? What is their their path to becoming a successful writer? Um, what sorts of strategies do more established writers have that that we as students can can pick up and mimic and imitate um, to find our own path to success? And it's also really just interesting to me on a personal level because everybody's process is, is so very different, right? And what works for what works for me may not work for you and vice versa. And so, um, and it's important too, I think for students to kind of make peace with that, that there is no correct path to being a writer as long as you're writing. But all that said, as they stampede over me again, uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your process for us, please? Um, you know, it's interesting. My process recently changed in the last couple of years and that um, the, what, what changed is that I started writing a newsletter Mm-hmm. And um, it has made me, uh, it has helped me oil the machine. So um, in the past, I mean, I've had blogs in the past, but I did, you know, did a little here and there. But there's something about a newsletter where you have a very specific audience that is asking you to send them this via email. Um, I have like 800 subscribers Um, and there's something, there's an intimacy to it. There's, there's something nice about knowing that there's a little bit of an expectation that you will correspond with these people maybe once a week or whatever you promise. And it has helped me to be less precious about what I write. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of low stakes. It's, it's a letter. And I try out a lot of material there before I then maybe consider pitching it as an essay or completing an essay and then submitting it on spec. Um, it's, it's a way to get over writer's block and perfectionism um, because I struggled for a long, long time with perfectionism. Also a fear of offending and hurting people, uh, which I have done in the past. Um, I've also learned a lot. Uh, throughout my career about how to hurt people less. Um, I, you know, it's impossible to tell a story about yourself without other people in it. And more often than not, they do not want to be in it. So I do my best. I've learned to blur people to the best of my ability um, to leave out the parts that aren't necessary for the dramatic action of the story. Um, But for so long, I was so afraid of upsetting people that I just wouldn't write, or I would only talk about what I was going to write instead of actually doing it. Um, Or I would write little bits of it and then abandon it. And I've found that a newsletter has really become a low stakes way for me to be writing regularly and touching on topics I want to touch on that I might want to develop further later. Mm-hmm. And so I started out on Substack, then I moved because Substack was letting all these anti-trans and um, anti-LBGTQ writers um, harass some of their uh, LBGTQ writers. Mm-hmm. And I moved to a platform called Button Down. And my, you can find my newsletter at adventuresinjournalism.com. Awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I'm glad that you, you mentioned perfectionism um, because I, I think uh, that plus editing is um, for a lot of new writers, kind of a lethal combination, <laughs> right? Where uh, uh, we've spent so much time, you know, hours and hours and hours of blood, sweat and tears, and a lot of tears <laughs> trying to, to craft the perfect thing and then being told that, well, no, this is just the first version of, of 10 or 20 Right. Um, well, the thing um, I, I've learned to tell myself is that it, the first draft just needs to exist. Yeah. So uh, another thing I've been reading, you know, I've been reading a lot of other writers and I can't remember who said this, but some famous like screenwriter said, I write the first draft as quickly as I can. I just, just get it out. Even if it's bad, just, just get it out so that it exists and then you can edit it. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of Pomodoro writing racing the clock because that takes the editor brain out of the room. Um, I've discovered that I can't use my editor brain and my writer brain simultaneously. So the Pomodoro quick writing is for the writer brain and then you go back and you edit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been a a struggle for me personally coming from um, the academic side of things where I did have that, that sort of Kurt Vonnegut style with my academic work, right? Where you are chiseling out every sentence um, to get stuff out. Um, and then as a screenwriter, uh, that does not, that does not work. <laughs> that, that style is, is almost uh, a curse <laughs> to at least, at least getting things on the page. Yeah. Um, Another thing I try to do when I can is write longhand, um, especially if it's something I'm agonizing over. I just the other day wrote a draft of something longhand. Uh, and then yesterday I transcribed it and edited it. And it was something I was having a lot of anxiety over. And um, I, the only way I could do it and, and uh, abandon perfectionism was to handwrite it in a notebook with a pencil. Um, I, you can't move paragraphs around easily that way. You can't obsess about the sentence. It's just like, turn on the timer, write, s- scribble it out. Um, and, and that, the only problem with that for me, though, is that if, if I do it regularly, if I don't transcribe often enough, then I get this backlog, which becomes counterproductive for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, really interesting, right? Um, because I think we have a lot of different tricks that we employ to kind of get around either writer's block or that that sense of impending <laughs> writer's block, where you can see it, you can see it coming a mile away, um, but don't get out of the way in time. I guess if that metaphor <laughs> makes any sense. Um, the writing longhand is definitely um, that's a, that's a really valuable technique, and I've I've done that myself um, as well with, with as a screenwriter. Um, and in fact, for uh, in in my 501 semester at Wilkes, um, the first screenplay that I wrote as a student in the program, sitting in my office on campus trying to get the formatting to work because screenwriting has very particular formatting um, that the word processing program I was using was not uh, <laughs> not conforming to, and I was ready to drop out of school right then and there um, mm-hmm. because my perfectionism was just like breathing down my neck. And so just getting out a composition notebook and writing it all out by hand was one of the most liberating experiences of my time at Wilts. Um, so strong, strong buy-in, strong support for the longhand, the longhand approach. Um, 
so one of the things that I, I think we, we definitely need to talk about, um, I would be remiss if uh, I didn't ask you while I have you here um, about what, what excites you about um, becoming a part of the Maslow Family Program at Wilkes University. Um, well, uh, I, um, I know it's a wonderful program. Um, my friend, uh, Beverly D'Onofrio, has talked so positively about it for so long um, that I was only too thrilled to be given the opportunity to join the faculty. Um, I love teaching. And I love working individually with students and also uh, in groups. And um, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I love to geek out over first person writing, um, you know, with people who are doing it and are passionate about it too. So that's Oops. part of the thrill. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is it like? I'm glad that you said geek out because that's the whole point of this, of the, of the podcast side of stuff. So I can, I can geek out with people about their work. Um, uh, so when you're when you're teaching new writers um, and and they they have stories that they want to tell but they're not really sure how to tell it what is what is that experience like? Um, you know I learned a lot of this from ghostwriting and coaching writers. Um, you know a lot of it there's a lot of like psychotherapy that I wind up doing, like <laughs> helping people feel like they have the permission to tell their stories. It's something that I've struggled with and, um, you know, still struggle with. So I think half the battle is helping people feel entitled to tell their story and figure out which parts of their story are theirs to tell. Mm -hmm. um, helping people just to be comfortable um, experimenting, you know, um, so you've been telling yourself this story this way your entire life. What else is there to it that makes it worth writing now yeah. beyond just making it an anecdote? What, um, how do we give this story meaning so that it's not just an anecdote and it's something transcendent that people can really um, identify with? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that helping people find the meaning of their story as opposed to just, you know, the storytelling that they're used mm -hmm. to doing. I have a few different exercises I use to help people um, break out of the confines of the way they've told themselves the story their entire lives and understand it differently and then tell it differently so that the reader can understand the meaning of it. That's, that's, that's like really the, the nut of, of what I try to do. That's so interesting um, because I... So I, I'm a sociologist by trade and I have my students write their sort of autobiographies for my social 101 class, um, just talking about the ways that, you know, race and gender and social class and sexuality, you know, major elements of social structure, how, how has that affected their lives? And they've been, I mean, they're what, like 18 or 19 years old. And so they only know their story from one angle. And so that idea of, of finding a different... A, or, or showing them, I guess, a different avenue to tell that story is so, is so fascinating. Yeah, it's really about choosing the lens through which mm -hmm. you tell it. And, you know, so there are ways to help people try different lenses through which they examine and then tell their story. Mm -hmm. So what, what sorts of lenses? Um, you know, 
some of it comes uh, happens in the workshop where um, people compare stories or share their stories, and then they start to hear other people uh, focus on different angles that maybe they hadn't considered for their own story. Um, and then I also have some exercises that I do, writing prompts and also a, a timeline. Um, this is something I developed when I was doing ghostwriting. I have them um, take whatever story they're telling and go back and do a timeline of every related event, um, a bulleted timeline, not like an entire memoir, but a bulleted timeline of every event that is related or somewhat related to that story. And it is shocking to most people the things that they have left out, the things that they hadn't thought of, the people who influenced their choices, the, that they didn't remember. They had just, they were just going through their life. Um, and, you know, when someone realizes, oh my God, this person did this thing for me. And that's how I wound up here. And then suddenly it becomes a story about, um, generosity or the generosity of someone they don't actually like but someone that, you know, gave the butterfly effect to their experience. It just helps them open up, open their mind to other possibilities of what happened and what it means. That's so interesting. Um, but the first thing that came to mind is that it, it seems like that could be a good way to help people recognize sort of how far reaching some major events in their lives could have been. Um, and then also uh, how, I guess, just the scope or the scale of, of how trauma could affect their life. Totally. Um, Another thing I do is I ask people to consider with each essay, what is the story, what is the question you are seeking to answer or even just ask with this piece? And often they don't know until they contemplate that. Often they aren't, they haven't really thought of a question. And I think a question uh, kind of figuring out what question you might want to answer or even just ask really helps to find a lens as well. You know, that's been a, a fascinating theme that's come up on these interviews um, with, with faculty um, has been that, that issue of, of uh, wanting to answer questions versus just needing to find the vocabulary to ask, to know what question you want to ask is such uh, philosophically such a fascinating kind of puzzle. Um, and that's interesting that, um, that, that I'm stuttering, that that same thing would come up with, um, like memoir, right? Because like you said, so many folks, I, I think focus on, well, I've had an interesting life and I want to tell my story. Um, but trying to find those themes and those questions to ask about your own life requires a level of introspection that, uh, not everybody is, I'll say blessed with. <laughs> <laughs> or cursed with, because um, it's certainly both. Um, that's that's I've never thought of memoir that way before, actually. Uh, another thing I want to say about memoir, because you just said that you know someone thinks, oh, I had an interesting life, I want to write about it. Some of my favorite essays and memoirs are not about people who've had any kind of extraordinary experience. They are writers who are really good at illuminating and crystallizing the ordinary. That to me is what a real writer is. A real writer is someone who contemplates the ordinary and gives significance and meaning to it 
Um, and that doesn't mean you can't be a writer who's had extraordinary experiences, mm -hmm. but some of my favorite, you know, essayists and memoirists are really just people who look at life in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's not that they, you know, grew up in a cult or, you know, something <laughs> strange. It's that they, you know, one of the people I think about in particular is Anne Lamott. Um, she's really good at just kind of examining things we all go through, things mm -hmm. that most people go through, um, as opposed to someone who, I don't know, yeah, who, who grew up in a cult or, and those, are, those memoirs are great too, but um, I just, I, too often um, I see reviews, this person's life wasn't interesting enough or, um, I see the people who like to trample on memoir saying, you know, you're not, you're not that interesting. And no, it's not about being interesting. It's not about the story being interesting. It's the interpretation and the meaning. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now my puppy is barking. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes with, with for working at home, right. It, it feels like a conspiracy where they know that I'm working. And so let's, let's get out the drum set next. Um, <laughs> That's why I wear these. Yeah. Yeah. I should have. Um, so you were, you were talking about uh, the, the power of great memoirists to, to sort of, uh, to borrow another sociological term to make the ordinary um, unusual and, and fascinating and, and uh, highlight that. So for, for folks like me or, or others who are listening who would say, well, I, I haven't had, like, who would, who would care about my story, about my life? Um, how, do you, how do you get students or how do you, how do you train students to sort of recognize the, the significance and, and honestly the beauty in, in the ordinary things in their lives? Um, well, I bring them essays to read uh, that achieve that. And I also, I do very specific writing prompts that are targeted to um, help people see some of the more mundane aspects of their lives as stories, as things to be explored, to uh, things to be kind of examined under a microscope. And, and sort of teaching people, I guess, or, or letting people know that it's acceptable to be proud of themselves too, right? Because I, I would have to imagine there's a self-esteem component to this. Oh, very much. Um, to feel as if their story matters, they matter. Um, telling their story matters. Um, you know, I, at the beginning of my own book, uh, you know, a couple, I have a couple of epigraphs. Um, and one of them is by Chloe Caldwell, who is a writer in her 30s, who's written a few books. And it's even, it's a quote from her Instagram. And she, she commented on something and said, um, I just wanted to write some things. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially, you know, women, marginalized people of all stripes often feel, have been told that their story doesn't matter, that mm -hmm. they don't have permission to take up space. Mm -hmm. And so I always try to... Um, instill in writers and people interested in writing uh, that 
they absolutely do matter, that their story matters and um, their perspective matters. And that if they feel called to tell their story, if they feel interested in their own experience, there are going to be people who are interested in it. And that's another nice thing about writing a newsletter. People respond, people correspond with me and tell me, you just told my story. You just validated me by telling your story that resembles my story. And often it's something that I thought twice about putting on, you know, writing about, um, or where I thought, well, at least it's just my newsletter. And when enough people write back and say, oh my God, I really get this. This really resonates with me. It tells me, you know what? I'm going to now turn this into an essay that I'm going to pitch somewhere. So um, newsletters are great for getting feedback from readers that validates you. That's so cool. And that's such a, I think, a great place to wrap this up um, by by letting everybody know that your story matters and you should never be afraid to tell your story. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us today, Sari. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. For more on Tenure Tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.